Greetings, everybody. This is Dave Stovall, and you're listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org. Today, we've got our very own point leader, Dr. Bobby Harrington, speaking with us about disciple-making movements across the world and connecting that to the grassroots everyday people at everyday churches pouring into each other. He contrasts the differences between these huge movements happening overseas and the things that we're lacking here in North America and brings to light the reasons why we aren't seeing those movements here in the States. Are we really taking this seriously? Do we really, really believe the gospel? And do we really believe that our lost neighbors are going to die and go to hell if they don't know Jesus before they leave this world? These are the things that Bobby's talking to us about today, and he's trying to get the fire reignited under us that gets us moving again and gets our focus on discipleship. Let's let Bobby speak into us today and to bring back that sense of urgency that we need in this country to see movements of discipleship break out across this land. Enjoy the episode, everybody. What I'd like to talk to you about is just kind of a, a grounding uh, for Trader's Point and any church that's trying to say, okay, <clears throat> give us a baseline on disciple-making and give us a baseline on some of the key things that we can work on. And so I'd like to do that by going through these uh, 10 trends. But before I do that, maybe I'll just give you a little bit of background on myself and why I care so much about this conversation and why I commend it to you and why I'm so grateful that uh, Bart, Greg Anderson, and Aaron Brockett are really focusing on disciple-making here at Traders Point and why I think it's so important. So uh, I'm gonna give you the short version of my story as a church leader, and that is uh, about uh, 25 and a half years ago, I planted a church just outside Nashville by the Harpeth River. It's called Harpeth Christian Church, and I was really excited. We planted it. Uh, we really tried to do a great job with our Sunday mornings, and uh, we tried to, you know, have uh, the best band we could have, uh, the best creative elements, uh, uh, the most uh, sticky, you know, invitations for people to come. And then we wanted to get people in small groups after they came because we wanted them to build relationships because we knew that if they have relationships and they serve, they're more likely to stay. And uh, so we did that. We started the church. And uh, shortly thereafter, I was asked to help train church planters. And so I started training church planters and helping create church planting networks. I actually met Aaron Brockett uh, when he first moved uh, to Indianapolis because he was a part of a cohort of senior pastors from churches here in Indianapolis who were working together and collaborating to plant churches. And uh, one day I got on the uh, uh, plane and flew back home and uh, I got a sinking feeling that um, we were doing a great job in attracting people, but we weren't doing a great job in transforming people. And I felt like when I really looked at Scripture, God's desire is not only that people would come to faith in Christ, but that they would grow rooted uh, in Christ and become mature in Christ. And I realized that um, in a lot of the churches that we were planting with the organization I was with, uh, people weren't being changed. People in the church were very much like people in the world. The only difference is that they would show up on Sunday and they might claim to be Christians. 
And so I started to really think about that. And uh, when I was working on it, um, there was another thing that was gnawing at my soul. And it was the realization that when you look in the New Testament and you ask yourself, what does the New Testament emphasize about the people who really know Jesus? It's in John chapter uh, 13 where Jesus said, by this all men will know you're my disciples the way you love one another. And I realized that our church and many of the churches we were planting, uh, we had great services, we had great worship, we often had great preaching, but not only were people not being transformed, but God's desire that we would love one another and lay our lives down for each other and be in community with each other, where we were willing to sacrifice for each other, that also was not happening in the churches. And so it... Um, it, it uh, just created a, a, a crisis in me personally. Well, that led to, I got a phone call one day. I'd actually uh, been praying about being a better leader, and I got a phone call, and I was invited to a conference to uh, learn more about small groups. And it wasn't so much about the small groups, but I just felt like God was in it. And so I went out, and uh, uh, I met uh, Jim Putman. We became fast friends. Uh, around an emphasis that he had uh, built the church around where they wanted to be disciples who make disciples, and they wanted to adopt Robert Coleman's book, The Master Plan of Evangelism. And The Master Plan of Evangelism uh, should actually be relabeled uh, Jesus' Master Plan of Disciple Making. Uh, when Robert Coleman wrote that in the early 1960s, there was such an emphasis on evangelism that evangelism was equated with disciple-making back then. Robert Coleman uh, will be here tomorrow. He has become a good friend of mine. And um, I think that uh, the idea that Jesus' method of making disciples applies to reaching lost people, which is evangelism, and Jesus' method of making disciples applies to growth in Christ-likeness. And the whole thing, rather than calling it the master plan of evangelism, is really Jesus' master plan of disciple-making. Well, I, I realized that the way that I was doing church and the way we were planting churches wasn't built around disciple-making. And I became convinced for uh, three reasons that it had to be the core of what we were doing. And the first reason is that um, it's what Jesus did. I just wanted to get back to uh, doing what Jesus did, and Jesus' master strategy, Jesus' emphasis was making disciples. He invested uh, in those uh, 12 men. Uh, he had a big ministry that included other people, but he focused on 12 men. You may have heard that Billy Graham, in the last years of his life, was asked, if you could go back and do something differently, what would you do? He said, I would do what Jesus did, I, I still may have done all my crusades in that, but I would have invested in 12 men who would then go out and multiply the ministry. So first off, I became convinced that Jesus' method was the best method. The second thing is that I became convinced that love for one another, the way Jesus taught it and the way Jesus demonstrated it, had to be the way the operating system of our churches. We had to get people where they were involved, not just in coming and, and listening to sermons, uh, not just even being in groups for relationships. And most churches just have 30 to 40% of people in groups anyway, but we wanted to get where the people in our churches 
wanted to be disciples, and they had relationships uh, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, the whole time where we're learning to love each other the way Jesus teaches us and the way that Jesus loved his disciples. And then thirdly, I became convinced that this is the key way for real-life transformation. The disciple-making, using the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the mission of Jesus, disciple-making, was the key to us being people who are very different than those who necessarily just show up on a Sunday morning for a church. So I became convinced of it. Um, I uh, put a pause on focusing on church planting. We transitioned the church where I am the lead pastor at. We uh, transitioned that church to a disciple-making focus where um, everybody is asked to think of themselves as disciples who make disciples, where uh, we have 80% of our uh, people who are in, in discipling relationships on a week-by-week basis now. And uh, it's just kind of the air that we breathe. God led me in the process of doing that to uh, be a part of the relational discipleship network that was started with Jim Putman. And then we started in uh, 2016, we started discipleship.org, where we are trying to bring people together from around the country to hear these conversations on putting into practice in our churches disciple-making the way Jesus practiced disciple-making. So that's a little bit of my background. So uh, let me, um, before I jump into this, uh, I'll give you uh, just some brief statistics. Actually, let me get to the statistics on the United States in just a few minutes as I walk through uh, each of these principles, okay? So I'm, I'm just going to walk through them. I think we've got some slides. Uh, the first is, and it's a focus on fasting and prayer. Uh, don't rely on leadership and strategy. If you will notice with Shadonke, he, he, he actually couldn't even help himself uh, Shadonke believes so much that it's the power of the Holy Spirit that transforms lives that um, we asked him to talk about the Word of God, and he was talking about the Word of God, but he said the way it works by working through the Word of God is it's actually the Holy Spirit of God doing it, if you'll notice that. Now, there's not a contradiction between the two. God, The Holy Spirit of God works through the Word of God to transform lives, but what you find in churches that are leaning in or uh, small groups, for example, here at Traders Point, you may have some small groups really leaning in or uh, folks in a rooted uh, environment really leaning in. You're going to find that where God is really moving actively in disciple-making, there's a high correlation of fasting and prayer for God to work and move in disciple-making movements. And you say, well, why are you telling us this? Here's why I'm telling you this. A lot of time has been spent in a lot of church leaders over the last 10, 20 years focusing on leadership techniques, leadership strategies, leadership focus. And there's nothing wrong with these things, but they're not sufficient for the time in which we live. We don't need to be smarter. We need to be more reliant on the Holy Spirit. We don't need to be more strategic, although strategy is important, but we need God to do what only God can do. So 
uh, I have observed and we have observed that fasting and prayer is the key component behind international disciple-making movements in contradistinction to what's happening in North America. Let me state it uh, this way. When you ask people who lead disciple-making movements around the world, and you say, what's different between what you're doing and what we're doing here? The first thing they're going to bring up is the way we don't fast and pray and the way they do fast and pray. So, for example, Shironke, before Shironke came, because we asked him to have his intercessors, they have over 10,000 intercessors whose main ministry next to disciple-making is intercessory prayer. They had 10,000 people praying. He uh, left a meeting of a 1,000 women devoting themselves to praying for us before he got on the plane to fly over here. And so I just want to commend and say, uh, it's actually what, you know, what the Bible says uh, in James chapter 4, come near to God and he will come near to you. And so it begins with uh, really importance of fasting and praying. Secondly, we want to insist when it comes to disciple making that the leaders model intentional relational disciple making. Typically, when a church is saying, okay, we've been relying on programs, I call it the Holy Trinity of uh, uh, praise and worship, preaching, and programs, that uh, they often do good things. So we are not saying those are bad things, but disciple-making, when it's really authentic and life-changing, is where everyday people see themselves as disciples who make disciples. Uh, most of us have been um, raised up in churches that emphasize the preaching, the praise and worship, and the programs. And so to shift from that, it's very important that the leaders of the church model that. So what becomes a super important thing as you're making the shift is that at every level of leadership in the church that uh, people say, hey, uh, we want our whole church to embrace this focus, but it's going to start with me. It's going to start with, uh, I'm a leader in the church, and I'm going to join one of the microgroups. I'm going to join Rooted. I'm going to make sure that I'm in an environment where I am being discipled and learning to make disciples. And if you're a church leader, what we say is that uh, church leaders have to start off and be what they want other people to be. It's so important that we model for it. So when it comes to disciple making, uh, whenever I'm coaching a church leader, I'll always start and, and I want to make sure that they are living it out to begin with. I want to find out who are you as a church leader, who are you meeting with regularly to disciple? Uh, in the case here at Traders Point, you have microgroups, you have small groups, you have rooted groups. Those are all great environments. And so the key thing is that all leaders at every level need to shift to where they're practicing disciple making so that it just becomes the normal thing that you do in the context of the church where I am, 
Uh, we have, we call them transformation groups. They're like your micro groups. And we have home groups, which are like your small groups. And so the thing for us is all of our elders, all of our staff, all of our key leaders, they're all uh, leading groups or they're in discipling groups so that when the people of the church look at the leaders, they all say, okay, you're leading and we will follow you. We have an expression, it's you can't lead where you don't go, you can't teach what you don't know, and you can't give what you can't show by your own lifestyle. So the first thing, and I would say this to everybody here, the first thing to do is to embrace uh, yourself personally. If you've never been discipled and you've never been in a discipling relationship, uh, go ahead and talk to Bart, talk to the others, and say, hey, I want to I want to start living this out myself. I want to carve time out of my schedule. In fact, I'll just say this. The biggest barrier for most people is time because you think, when am I going to have time to invest in discipling relationships? And what I'll typically do with a church leader is I'll say, uh, hey, let's talk about this. Let's meet and let's work through this. Can you carve out five hours a week? We have a model, it's like your life group, or I'm sorry, your, your micro group model, where if you can carve out five hours a week, it would look like this. It would be, uh, the meeting itself would probably last an hour and a half, so then there's the time to travel to the meeting, and the time after the meeting, say 30 minutes each way, so what you've got is you've got two and a half hours there, and what's the rest of the time? The rest of the time, remember, we're going to love like Jesus so it's texts, it's phone calls, it's checking in uh, on the people that you're in discipling relationships with. Because disciples are made through relationships, and uh, we want to make sure it's not just study, it's not just curriculum, that there's enough time for relationships. So we stay, if we, we, we invite people to plan ahead and carve out five hours a week for discipling relationships if, if, if you're not doing that right now. And I just want to encourage you that it's totally worth it and it will totally lead to more of the life that we see people living in the Bible. The third, the third uh, trend or the third um, shift that I would encourage you to make is to the leaders of the church to craft a church-wide disciple-making system. Now, I first uh, came to know about uh, the leadership here at Traders Point because Greg Anderson asked me about a year and a half ago to look at the system that, that Traders Point was developing in terms of the microgroups. So Greg sent me uh, the microgroup model. I thought it was a fantastic model, told them so, and ended up having conversations with Aaron, Bart, uh, and others. And what has to happen to really... Uh, become a disciple-making church is that there has to be just a systemic way of thinking about it so that uh, there's a process by which, for example, in a church that does such a great job like Trader's Point of drawing people into the services, a great pathway of coming in and then uh, uh, moving people through rooted, through the rooted groups, and then into the micro groups and the home groups. And Bart, you're going to come up and help me at the end here because I want to make sure I'm accurately describing your system. But the idea is that the leadership thinks of the entire church as a disciple-making system so that everything works together 
so that people who come to Traders Point are invited into these relationships. These relationships then multiply and reproduce so that the church eventually becomes a community in which the majority of people can say, hey, I'm a disciple and I'm in discipling relationships. I'm either discipling people or I'm being discipled. And the metric that you ultimately want to get to, if I could just uh, suggest this with you from a, a lot of studying and time that I've spent, the metric you want to get to is where 75 to 80 percent of, of the congregation, of the regulars in the congregation, are actively involved in discipling relationships. So that leads me to number four, and that is uh, that the churches adopt a simple, effective, and reproducible model. Let me tell you what I mean by a simple, effective, and reproducible model. You all had the advantage of listening to Curtis Sargent and Shadonke. And did you notice the simplicity when Curtis Sargent got up and described what they do using the three stools? What do you want people to do? He said it'd be great to get people in Scripture where they read or listen to, I think he said, 35 to 40 chapters of the Bible a week, which is a lot, right? Okay, let me just tell you the great advantages of that. I'll get to it, actually. When, when we are that much involved in Scripture in a week, it literally disciples our minds to think the way Scripture does. But notice what he said. You want to get people where they're reading or thinking about that much Scripture and that you do it in a way that he said is real simple. They got to they understand it, obey it, and share it. Now, typically... Uh, in disciple-making movements around the world, they make it very simple. One of the methods often used is called discovery Bible study. It's a simple method, similar to how Curtis described soap or soaps, he made it, where there's, you look at Scripture, what does Scripture say, how do you obey it, so it's S-O, Scripture, Observation, Application, Prayer, and Share. What does Scripture say? What's your observation about what it says? How do you apply what it says? How do you pray for each other about applying or obeying it? And with whom do you share it? So that would be a simple method, right? Uh, it's a version of Discovery Bible Study. There's different ways of doing it, but what you'll find where the average everyday person sees themselves as a disciple who makes disciples is the average everyday person has that simple, effective methodology. That's what they practice. That's what they know. So it's simple that everybody can do it because what you want to do is you want to push it out from the church leadership to the everyday person in the church. So it's got to be simple. Uh, my dad was a truck driver with a, 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 five, a fifth grade education. And uh, I'll often talk about truck driver theology. It's got to work for a truck driver. And uh, I, because I grew up in a home of a truck driver and I actually managed my dad's trucking company for five years, I, f I have a great affection for truck drivers. Um, but I, I, I know that a lot of things that churches do get so sophisticated, it's just not realistic for the everyday average person to do it. 
and we've got to make it simple like what we're talking about. And then it's got to be effective. It's really got to help us to become, either come to faith in Christ or become more and more like Christ. And then it's got to be reproducible, where once I've been through it, then I can do it with somebody else. Even that soaps method that we just talked about, the thing that's so great about it is once you've been through it, let's say that you practice that for three to four months, if you're in a group and they just took something like soaps, and I'm using that as an example of discovery Bible study, if you've been through that uh, for two or three months, it's super easy to then you start a group and you take people through soaps. Do you see that? So it's simple, it's effective. Uh, again, if you're getting people to read that much scripture, uh, like what Curtis talked about, and even if it's just let me just be transparent. If you can get people to just read five chapters a week, that's amazing. Make it simple. If it's effective and changes their lives and reproducible, then what you start seeing is that uh, I disciple so-and-so, so-and-so disciples so-and-so, and so-and-so disciples so people after that. The idea is that we want it to be where it's not us doing the ministry, but it's the people we're equipping to do the ministry. So in a disciple-making church staff, it becomes a question not of how am I doing at making disciples? How am I doing at making disciple-makers is the question. How many people am I training and equipping so that they make disciples and the disciples they make make disciples and the disciples they make make disciples? So it's getting the average person in the game of being and making disciples. Number five, uh, I want to talk about encouraging as we're doing now, and I'm so grateful. Bart has been stellar at this, uh, of really looking at disciple-making movements in terms of what they're doing and practicing. Now you can see on the diagram on your screen there that we have five levels of disciple-making churches. If you can, if you'll just uh, be patient with me, I'd like to explain the diagram. And if you'll notice there's number one, number two, number three, four, and five. So these are gonna be five different types of churches and I want to tell you what we learned about churches in North America when we completed a study. Discipleship.org uh, did a study with the Exponential Network and Gray Matters, the research organization that works with um, like Lifeway and other organizations. So we did a national study on disciple-making cultures. It was published uh, in March of 2020, uh, just before covid and it was an in-depth analysis of the state of the American church, the American evangelical churches. And the result is, uh, statistically, was to be within uh, 3 to 5% accuracy of the North American church. So even though it's three years old, uh, the study was a pretty important snapshot at that time. And let me point out to you that um, if you looked at that time, at churches in the United States, you could pretty much divide them up. A little less than a third were uh, declining, uh, around a third were plateauing, and a little more than a third were growing by addition, number three. Now, I'll tip my hat off to you. 
there are no, we could not find in that study any churches at level five, which would be disciple-making movements. Now, since then, we've been told of some disciple-making movements in North America that I'll explain in just a second. But I want you to know that um, only slightly less than 5%, we're going to say less, just less than 5% of churches in North America would reproduce disciples the way we're talking about, where it's uh, the church has a culture where people make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Instead, if you'll look at level three, level three are churches that make disciples by drawing people to programs. So it's the praise and worship, the preaching, and the programs, and disciples are made sort of one at a time by the church as a whole. Now, is there anything wrong with that? No, there's, that, that, that's not wrong. It's probably not sufficient in many cases, though, for the culture in which we are moving into. See, uh, preaching is not the most effective way to change people. Programs are not the most effective way to change people. Praise and worship is great, but it's not the most effective way to change people. What's the most effective way to change? It's where people have discipling relationships, where it's the action of the discipling relationship, which includes the Word of God, the Spirit of God, the people of God, and the mission of God. If you put those four things together in a discipling relationship, as Jesus demonstrated, that's where real-life change is most powerful and effective, especially in a time such as ours. So we're encouraging that the churches shift to level four and become more uh, focused on reproducing disciples who make disciples. I'm going to leave it there because I want to give Bart a chance to ask some questions about this. Uh, let's go to number six in terms of the future trends. Uh, these churches that are really focused on disciple-making make Scripture the curriculum. Uh, what we're finding around the nation is that more and more churches are actually not getting people into Scripture. And, and here's what I mean by that, and you can identify with this. Uh, people often want to hear a good sermon rather than read Scripture themselves. They want to read a good book about the Bible rather than the Bible itself. And uh, one of the things that's happening is in disciple-making movement churches and disciple-making emphasis, there's a real emphasis that Scripture is the curriculum, that the average everyday person can read and understand and follow the Bible, and the average everyday Christian really needs to read and understand and follow the Bible for himself or herself. Here's why. It is the most convincing, life-changing thing on the planet to see that Scripture, God says this in Scripture, and when, when we see that this is what God says, there's a power uh, for me to change and uh, mold my life around that that does not exist when I just listen to a great sermon, as good as they are, or when I just read a book about it. So uh, again, it's promoting the curriculum and the importance of Scripture. Number seven, what we're finding is that uh, in many churches, 
because they have not been spending time in Scripture, there is a need to shore up doctrinal foundations. In fact, uh, throughout um, North America right now, uh, the consensus on a lot of uh, commonly held beliefs that Christians had are being lost. And uh, so we just advocate that in disciple-making, we get back to them. Let me mention uh, six of them. I'm sorry, five of them to you. First, the reliability and authority of Scripture. The biggest thing that persuades people of the reliability and authority of the Scripture, by and large, is actually spending time in it. Secondly, the necessity of salvation through Jesus Christ. Right now, I've been working through, just reading through, or listening to the book of Acts again. And uh, one of the things that stands out to me as I go through the book of Acts, for example, is the, the reality that they held that people are lost and facing God's judgment if they don't turn to faith in Jesus. And what smacked me on the side of my face this time when I'm going through it is how in our common culture today, people don't think that way. We don't live our lives like we're going to stand before God at the end of human history and uh, we're going to have to give an accounting of our lives. Even Christian people, we're not thinking so much, I want to be able to stand before him and hear him say to me, well done, good and faithful servant, so that it guides our regular uh, thought process every day. But when you spend time in Scripture, you're going to see the emphasis on the necessity of salvation through Jesus. How about number three? When you spend time in Scripture, another thing you're going to be awakened to is the importance that we reach people who don't know Jesus, that the time is short, and we have to win as many as we can to be faithful followers of Jesus. How about the vital role of the local church? Again, when you're reading through Scripture, you'll notice that church is central to the life of a disciple. It's not something we add on. It's central to our lives. Uh, and then the morality of the Bible. For example, when we read through Scripture, uh, we don't have to be persuaded by um, a lot of voices about uh, ethics, about what's right and wrong, about sexual standards, about what's right and wrong, about things like the Ten Commandments, because when we're spending time in Scripture, it just persuades us itself because we're exposed to it so regularly. Number eight, teach uh, in terms of your disciple-making about God's holiness, hell, and the gospel. Uh, right now in North America, there's a real deadness uh, to the reality of these things that's just creeping in our daily, the daily lives of Christians. But the reality is that humanity, each of us, in and of ourselves, we're separated from God and we're a part of Satan's kingdom. That uh, if we don't repent, we're going to be subject to God's judgment at the end of our lives. Scripture teaches that God will punish us for our sins if we don't turn and repent. And let me just ask you this. And again, being in Scripture regularly in discipling relationships just makes us so aware of this. But we don't think of the fact that people all around us who don't follow Jesus, they're lost eternally. And that's the greatest tragedy on planet Earth. Let me just read to you from uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul writes about God, 
about Jesus. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord from the glory of his might when he returns. I don't think that way regularly unless I'm in scripture or I'm with my brothers and sisters in discipling relationships and we're going, this is reality. This is when we believed in the gospel. This is what we believed and this is the reality. These are the stakes of the world around us. Well, I won't keep going through those, but I do want to go to number nine. Uh, And this is such an important thing. And I'm so glad that here at Trader's Point, that it really matters to your leadership. Bart specifically uh, brought up, Bart and the team, the importance of talking about family discipleship. Uh, I would say this, uh, when you're looking at everything that's happening in our culture today, there are many things that we could try to address. But if we're focusing on root issues, the most important thing for us to address is that Christian parents would disciple their children in the ways of Jesus. The Great Commission before the Great Commission is Deuteronomy chapter 6. And here's what it says. It begins by saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God. So it begins with us loving God. Secondly, Uh, these commandments that God gives to parents, and he gives it to parents, he doesn't expect the church to train the children. God expects the parents to train and disciple the children. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Verse 7, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Let me tell you one of the things that's really different when you spend time looking at Christianity in other countries and in American history. If you uh, spend time looking at the typical Bible-believing family in the United States up through the 1960s, the one thing that really stands out to me that's so different is that families back then understood that it was their job to disciple their children and train them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. For some reason today, our families don't feel like they're qualified to do that, and they have to send their kids to Christian schools, or they have to send them to the church so that the church can teach their children. And God's plan A is that parents would disciple their children. So what you're finding in churches that are really committed to disciple making is a real emphasis on training the families in the church, A, that it's their responsibility, and B, practical ways so that they can do it and live it out every day. And then lastly, number 10 to use technology and social media to disciple people, to use tools that people can use every day. Here's what I mean by that. Um, Technology can come across, and in many cases, is the enemy of true discipleship. 
But actually, churches and church leaders, and I think you guys already are doing a lot of this stuff here, are using technology, social media, for discipling. For example, uh, in discipling groups, use apps like GroupMe so that everybody in the group is able to kind of keep up connected with each other. Uh, I'm in a, in a group right now, uh, in my home group, and uh, every day we're just texting and and uh, keeping track and praying for one another. Um, there are certain uh, Bible tools. For example, YouTube has, uh, not YouTube, uh, YouVersion uh, has a plan that we are using because we want to access technology. So in, the, in my context, our church, we're trying to disciple everybody. And so we've asked everybody to commit to this one-year plan where every day everybody in the congregation reads at least one chapter together. And uh, everybody has, uh, has the same app, the same plan, the same encouragement. And the more that we do this kind of thing, it helps us to live lives in the current environment in which we live where uh, we are helping each other and we are encouraging each other in everything we think, say, and do to think of ourselves as we're all disciples and we're all making disciples and we're all using these tools to keep us in Scripture, and to keep us encouraging each other. So those are the 10 uh, principles. I hope you find them helpful. I think they'll, they'll serve as a, as a great uh, gateway or introduction for the church as you are deepening your commitment to uh, Jesus-style disciple-making. So Bart, why don't you come on up, and we can uh, follow up on a, maybe a few questions. So what we wanted to do is create some, some common language, talk about the things that matter about dis- making disciples. And so thank you for walking us through some of those trends. Sure. These are trends that leaders need to embrace if we're going to make disciples. So I'm sitting there, I'm listening. I've read through that before. I've heard, you've talked about it. We've had some conversation. Um, I jotted down a few things, and I'm kind of curious. What is one of the hardest things for you personally to implement into your life? You look at those 10 things, like what was the hardest shift for you to make that we could maybe identify with, either in your context or just really personal sure. in your life? So um, the first thing that I had to shift and then help our whole uh, staff and elders and everybody to shift is that the core mission of the church is disciple-making. So that um, there's so many things and so many different ideas about what the church should focus on and then to get that clarity, no, you know, it's not just Jesus saying this in Matthew 28, go and make disciples, uh, teaching them, uh, you know, to obey all of my commandments and so forth. You, you see it at all the different levels in the New Testament. The really, the thing that's going on is that God wants everybody to come to salvation in Christ and then maturity in Christ and everything in the church should be designed around that. And God's plan, as evidenced in Jesus' life and the Apostle Paul's life, is that it's done through relationships. So the biggest change there is really to, to ask everybody to reorient their thinking around that, because then it, how you spend your money uh, is impacted by that. How you staff the church is impacted by that. Um, what you ask of all the leaders in the church, because you want all the leaders to be living it out, and I made a lot of mistakes there with that. And then just my wife and I, we want to be living it out every day in all the things that we do. So 
I'd say those are the hardest things. No, thank you. Uh, one of the things that intrigued me when you walked through that graph, you guys all took notes on that, the, uh, the one, two, three, four, five. Yeah. And, and you didn't get into it in depth today, but I know it was in the study when you guys released it a few years ago. Yeah. And um, it walked through, um, and I think one of the things you said was the engine that gets a church to level three and their operating system is not the engine that will take them to level four That's or level right. five. And so uh, why is that and what things need to change? You alluded to a little bit of it in your talk, but like yeah. maybe you can speak to that. For so a the real thing uh, that's the real engine to get to level four is um, setting up systems and structures and a lot of teaching to help the average everyday person see themselves as I am a disciple and I, I want to make disciples. I want to do my part personally, not just to support the programs of the church, but to be involved in relationships where I'm meeting with people and discipling them. I'm meeting with a group. We're in scripture. We're encouraging each other. We're following up on each other. Uh, I'm asking my neighbor who isn't a believer to join a, a discipling uh, group where we're going to look at scripture together and I'm going to try to help them to become a disciple. The biggest thing to go from level three to level four is going to be uh, increasing the number of people who see that they individually are called by God to make disciples. So many of us just rely on the church. Uh, and, and we have great preaching and you have great programs. It's really easy to rely on the church to do it. Whereas in the long run, it's much more important that everyday people seek to do it. I hope that helps. Yeah, it's releasing that ownership to people, that priesthood of believers, the agency. Yeah, that's yeah. right. No, that's helpful. Thank you. Um, one of the things you talked about in, I think, uh, the scripture part, one of the subsets of, uh, I can't remember which point it was, but uh, I'm kind of curious why you think it is that most believers in our context don't share their faith. But when you look at movements around the world, yeah. most believers do share their faith. There's something fundamentally different, and you alluded to the fact that it could be Scripture, yeah. our time in Scripture. Is it that? Is it more than that? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think this is a real crucial issue for the church right now. Um, I think part of what happens to us, if we're really honest, is that um, we live these lives where we're materially well-off, and uh, there's a principle taught in the Bible in Deuteronomy chapter 8 that we tend to feel pretty good about ourselves and who we are and what we're doing. And uh, we have a confidence uh, in ourselves and in our wealth and in our possessions and in our lifestyle. And the difficulty with that, there's nothing wrong with those things, but when we don't couple that with uh, really in-depth time in Scripture and seeing lost people come to salvation, is we actually get numb to the teachings of the reality of eternity. We get numb to the reality that without the gospel, people are eternally lost. We, we, we believe it in theory, and if you ask people, they will say yes, but they believe it in theory more than they believe it in reality. Like, my, my child uh, is, is one day gonna stand before God, or my neighbors uh, who don't follow Jesus and don't care about Jesus, they're really lost. Uh, the guy that I work with, the people I work with, they don't know Jesus, and they're really lost. We don't live in that reality because we've become 
numb to it, I think. And I think the more time we're in Scripture, the more we see, uh, the more we see baptisms that we're involved in and the more we're engaged actively making disciples and in the Great Commission, it just helps to create a vibrant culture where the truths of the gospel become forefront in our minds. They're not theoretical things, but they're things we're actually having to embrace and live out every day. And is it in part, too, because we don't see it? You know, when you see something, you're more likely to do it. I think in our context, we don't see a lot of people giving us good examples of sharing their faith, where yeah. I think it's a snowball effect. You see yeah. it in other places, like with Shadonke, where they just continue to do it because it's part of their culture. Yeah, yeah. And so we and, don't I model it well. The key thing is it's part of the culture. So when you have a culture, like in these disciple-making movements, they don't know that they're not supposed to make disciples. So they think if you're going to be a Christian, you're automatically a disciple-maker and you know, your job is to make disciples and plant churches. That, like, that's what you do because it's the practices uh, that they're involved in every day where our cultures aren't like that. And so we have to be gracious with our people and gracious with ourselves, but realize that we need different kind of cultures where we're actually, everybody's in the game, everybody's involved in the mission. That's great. All right. Well, I'm a pragmatist, and I want us to go land the plane with baby steps. What does it look like for people here today um, to put some of this into practice, maybe something that is a good first step to take, especially those who might not be leading the congregation? Yeah. Even at Trader's Point, obviously, I mean, Aaron is our, our point leader. Yeah. Uh, a lot of us are leading different things, but we're not leading. And we can't make all of the decisions. Almost no one can really at Trader's yeah. Point. So what does it look like for us to be able to put something into practice? So uh, let me just say something to you, Bart, and Trader's Point. I was here several months ago at the beginning of the year, I think, where Aaron preached on, you know, this year that they're really leaning into disciple making. And I was just so proud of him and you guys, you know, you could really rest on your loyals. You got a lot of laurels. You got a lot of people coming and all that. But, but you, like you and Greg and Aaron, your hearts are really like on the right things. So I just wanted to say, that. I also want to say that when churches make the shift, it takes a long time because uh, it's creating a different culture around uh, these things. And the way that everybody can help is if everybody believes what we're saying, then to start the baby steps of saying, hey, if I'm not in a group right now, I want to get in a group. In fact, I think, Bart, you want people to get into a group before they lead a group, although there's probably exceptions. Uh, and so I think it's really important to get in a group, especially these micro groups that you're doing, uh, and learn it because you've set it up where once you've experienced it, then you can go ahead and lead another group. So I, I just think that that's really great. And if at every level, it could be just encouragement. Let's all learn more about this. Let's all engage in this. Let's all find, find people we can invite to join a group with us. Now, thank you for your wisdom today. Thanks for helping enrich Traders Point and those who are here to learn more about disciple making. So, so grateful for you again. Thanks so much for listening today, everybody. Up next, we've got a Q&A session with Shadonke Johnson and Bart Shaw that happened at the last forum. I'm very excited about this. I love hearing Shadonke talk and just the, um, the sense of urgency that he brings when he's talking about these stories that happen in Sierra Leone and just the miracles that they see God doing there in their country. 
because they're being obedient because they're fasting and praying for these things to be happening. If you haven't hit the subscribe button just yet, go ahead and do that so you know when I release that new episode. And hey, Nashvillians, we've got the forum coming up, the city tour version of the forum, October 27th and 28th here in the Nashville area. If you haven't got your tickets yet, go to discipleship.org and do that. And if you live anywhere else, you can also check to see when we're coming to a city near you on our website. So go do that. All right, y'all, thank you so much for listening, and I hope that you enjoy the rest of your day. We'll see you on the next one.